This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. There are clauses within the agreements of fast food chains that spell out that employees of one restaurant can't be poached by another one of the same restaurant chain, like working for a Wendy's and then being offered a job at another one five miles down the road. But there is a concern in this knowledge by several state attorneys general that this practice may be holding down wages for people working in this sector. It may also be hindering career advancement as well. And this is not the only sector reliant on franchisees using these clauses. They are just the most common in the rest in restaurant industry. So an investigation is ongoing into this practice. With more on this, we're joined here in studio by Peter Capelli, Management Professor and Director of the Center for Human Resources here at the Wharton School. Matt Johnson joins us from Duke University. He's a research science at the School of Public Policy. And on the phone with us, Evan Starr, who's an Assistant Professor in Business Management and Organization at the University of Maryland. Peter, great seeing you as always. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Matt. Great having you with us today. Great to be here. Thanks. Evan, great to have you on the phone with us. Thanks. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Peter, take us into this. And obviously, this case is is a very important one in terms of the structure of pay. For a lot of people, there are obviously thousands upon thousands of people who are working these jobs around the country. Right. So let's see if we could broaden this out just a little bit, and then we'll narrow it down. So there are two sets of practices that are sort of on the table here. One are Restrictive covenants, and these are things that Evan has worked on. We'll say more about it, I'm sure, in a little bit. These are agreements that employers have with individual employees saying that you can't typically go to work for competitors. Those are non-compete agreements. Or you can't steal our employees away if you leave. Those are non-solicitation agreements. And there are non-disclosure agreements which say you can't uh, give them information that's proprietary, right? There's that. And then there are these agreements we're talking about here, which are less common because they're almost always illegal. (laughs) These are antitrust questions about whether you can have an agreement among employers not to hire from each other. So those were in the news pretty recently uh, because of the stories we heard at Disney uh, and then also among the IT companies in Silicon Valley, the big story there, uh, where they had these informal agreements not to hire from each other. Those are typically illegal. The Justice Department in the U.S. Justice Department has gotten very interested in those because they seem to be a whole lot more common than we thought. Mm-hmm. They're rarely written down. Uh, these franchise agreements are different because they are agreements uh, that the franchisee signs yeah. if I'm going to have a McDonald's franchise or something like that. So there's two reasons why these are of interest, I think. One is it speaks to the nature of what is a franchise really about. Yeah. Because on the one hand, the franchise companies like McDonald's and others uh, go to great pains to argue that each business is independent, right? Uh, And part of that is to protect the mothership from lawsuits and things that individuals might bring against uh, individual stores or against unionization, right? Uh, So they make that argument. On the other hand, they have to argue here that these businesses are really um, part of – one great big company, or you couldn't make them enter into these agreements, right. which are part of the 
you know, the operating agreement of the franchise. So one question here is what is a franchise really? How tightly can you really tell them what to do? Can you make them sign these agreements without turning them into just part of your company? And the second thing, which is obviously the bigger story that you're raising, and that is there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on through public policy and law, which is not good for employees, particularly in the sense of trying to raise their wages, which has been, you know, a big concern now as the economy is stronger and wages still aren't going anywhere. And you can start looking through and seeing places like this in the way the economy works and the laws are enforced that make it difficult for people to get higher wages. I mean, if you can't leave and you can't work for uh, a competitor, Evan's, I'm sure, going to talk about his work on this, it lowers your wages. And you you can see that, right? So here's an example of policy being used to to do something which might be great for the employer, but it's bad for the employees. Evan, I'll let you pick it up from there. Yeah, I I think that uh, uh, Peter kind of nailed it on the head that like when we think of individual contracts, some people don't have a problem with the fact that some people that workers will agree to a provision that stipulates that they can't work for a competitor or that or that they can't leave uh, and and solicit clients. But I think the big problem here is that all of this is invisible to the worker. The worker does not agree to this, that they do not know that it's happening. And if they learn that they don't get along with their manager, if they learn that it's not a good work environment, or perhaps they have to move locations for some reasons and their skills are are basically perfectly transferable to another uh, franchise uh, within within that same company, of course, then they're not able to do that. And all of that is totally invisible to them. And so I think uh, I think that's that's really the main problem here is that there's really no uh, agreement or consent to these types of restrictions that could be holding back these workers. Matt, where are your concerns in this? Well, so I think my concern lies in, you know, first, just taking a step back and reminding ourselves, like, you know, in theory, is there an economic case for these sorts of agreements? And, you know, in theory, there can be. Right. So uh, what many employers argue is that. These types of restrictive agreements protect investments they make in workers like training or protect other sorts of investments. Like, you know, in some sectors, investments employers make to attract clients that workers might build a relationship with and take with them. So, you know, the economic argument behind that is that if employers know that I can train a worker and that worker can just immediately go leave, I might have less incentive to provide that training. And if I Provide, if I make the workers sign one of these agreements, maybe that aligns my incentive to provide the training. That training goes up. Everyone's more productive. Um, now, you know, the other side of that economic point is, of course, the cost to the worker, as Peter and Evan have already put so well. The, you know, fewer employment opportunities, the weaker bargaining power. So if, you know, to satisfy kind of an economic case here, we should see that if workers sign these agreements, they have some sort of demonstrable wage premium to compensate them for the cost. But, you know, especially in fast food, we're not seeing that. Many of these workers are paid minimum wage. Uh, Similar, there's no kind of wage variation there, suggesting that these are not being used in kind of an economic rationale. Uh, The other thing uh, that's especially pernicious about the no poaching agreements is because they're so invisible to workers, workers really have no ability to uh, argue or negotiate over them. Peter? Yeah, I just want to make uh, sure we understand the distinction again between these uh, no poaching agreements, which are things that the franchise signs, yep. and then there are the restrictive covenants and the non-compete agreements, which are things that individuals sign. And uh, these are – the franchise ones are 
not ones that individuals sign. That right. was the point Evan was making. These are things that the franchise does to the individual employees. And Evan's point that the employees don't don't know about that is certain, certainly right. But I think more broadly, the question is, what do we think about public policy here in this context? It's something that you know, certainly smells like it's illegal, right, because yeah. of antitrust yeah. issues. And, and right? basically you're talking about, uh, to a degree, Evan, it, it, to put it in layman's terms, it's almost like the under-the-table handshake between, you know, two, uh, two relatively competitive uh, businesses, but they're also friendly as well, to not hurt one another. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's... I think that's right, and I, and I think we need to like step back and ask why these exist in the first place a little bit, because uh, uh, to the best of my knowledge, Orly Ashenfelter and Alan Kruger uh, were the first people to, to to unearth these these findings that roughly 58% of the major franchises in the U.S. have these kinds of no poach agreements, and and I, the, the, one of the key findings from their paper is that uh, the industries that tend to have a really high new hire rate, meaning that there's lots of churn, there's lots of worker turnover. That's where these types of provisions are are, are more likely to be found. And so I think there's some there's some that it, it may not be just about training, but but also these guys are, are walking out the door a little bit more frequently. And so it could be that the reason these things got started in the first place was an attempt to actually retain workers and keep them around a little bit longer in order to prevent. Um, uh, in order to prevent turnover costs and that sort of thing, and so I, I think that's a you know there's one question of why why these things came about a separate question of whether they're legal and what we should do about them and I'll just make one comment on that which is that I think if they're just blatantly trying to restrict the movement of workers then we should be really leery of them mm-hmm. and if we take Matt's argument seriously about training uh, and whether these are good uh, a good way to protect investments in training. Then I think we need to think a little more carefully about other ways that you could pr- protect training without having these kind of invisible constraints to the employee. So, for example, one one thing that you see uh, in in other industries is a, a training repayment contract, which says something like, "We're going to give you all of this training, and if you leave uh, within the next year, you have to pay us back for a thousand dollars or half of it or whatever it is. And then if you leave after two years, then you pay a quarter of it, and so on. And it has kind of uh, you know, decreasing scale of payments, and that that's a that's a contract that that you could write that would protect training investments, but it wouldn't uh, necessarily hinder the employee, especially if after a few years all of those repayments are down to zero. Peter, I think that raises a, Evan raises a, a general question, and that is to what extent. Uh, should we think about how do we think about situations where what is good for the employer is not good for the employee? So there are lots of reasons why it might make sense for an employer to do things which are not good for employees. Let's face it, employers would like to pay as little as possible. That's part of the business of capitalist society. They would like to, if they train people, to do it as cheaply as possible and yeah. not lose the training costs. Employees would like to pay, be paid as much as possible and to be able to move whenever they want, right? So the job of public policy is to try to balance these. And and Evan's point, I think, is 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 right on this first issue is if if you really were concerned about training, and come on, let's not kid ourselves, right? Fast food is probably the industry that trains the least right, yeah. in their employees, yeah. right? But they have an interest in in reducing turnover. Everybody does. Uh, but, non, uh, but non-poaching agreements are 
in terms of public policy, you know, one of the hardest ones to swallow to try to deal with that. And there are lots of other ways you could do this. You could have them sign non-compete agreements, right? The problem of, is going to be enforcing those because the courts are going to look at them the way we're looking at them and saying, really? Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, you can't work at another McDonald's because of what? But the, <laughs> the other thing, Matt, to this is the fact that seemingly how many employees that are going to work for a McDonald's or a Wendy's or Arby's or whatever the chain may be, how many of these employees, Matt, actually know that this is in the agreement that they're, that they're signing, when they, signing when they go to work for this company. And therein lies, I think, a, a very big problem. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, to reiterate what Peter and Evan have already said, I mean, of course, with these no poaching agreements, workers are going to have no idea because that doesn't show up anywhere in their contract, no matter how closely they read it. This is happening kind of under the radar uh, between the franchisors. If we're talking about, you know, the possibility, maybe you could have workers sign non-compete agreements instead that are included in their hiring contract. There, you know, that's possible, but there's much evidence, including some work that Evan's done surveying people about their, uh, you know, whether they're covered by non-compete agreements, is that many people don't know, don't, don't know what's in the back of their hiring contract. So a non-compete agreement might be buried several pages into a hiring contract and, you know, if you're like me, when you read these long contracts, you might just skim over them. So it's very possible that, um, you know, workers might not find out about this. So I know that one idea has been floated is that, you know, if we think that employers should have the freedom to include these sorts of contracts, uh, restrictive covenants and hiring contracts, you know, maybe we should require them to be upfront about it with workers and, you know, make sure that workers are aware of them. Well, and to date, I don't think that happens. Evan, in terms of the, the length that, that, that these industries have been using these no poaching agreements, how far back are we talking that we go here? Uh, and should this have been obviously something that should have been looked at a lot closer years ago? That's a, that's a great question. So uh, the, the honest answer is I'm sure that employers have been colluding for all of time. Um, yeah. To some to some degree or or another, yeah. Uh, but uh, non competes, uh, which are of course uh, contracts that individuals do sign. The earliest non compete case was in fourteen fourteen, and those contracts arose out of the the guild era where you would apprentice for a master craftsman who would then ask you not to compete in the same product market once you were once you were fully trained. Um, and so th these th those types of provisions have been around for a long time. But in terms of these franchise level no poaching agreements, really. Uh, Orly Ashenfelter and Alan Kruger uncovered the first evidence of it. Uh, maybe you can go back to get franchise contracts from, from way before, but I'd say, uh, at least I'm not aware, maybe the other people know that w when this practice actually started in the in the franchise industry. Yeah, and it's a great uh, point because it's really, really difficult to know. These operating agreements that franchises have uh, are in some ways contain some of the secret sauce of being a franchiser. Yeah. So they're not public. A few years ago, I tried to look into some of these for a different reason, uh, and it was really difficult to find any place that had copies of these agreements. The franchisees and the franchisors don't want you to see them, sure. so it is, it's pretty hard to look. 
844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with comments or questions. We are joined by Peter Capelli of the Wharton School here in studio on the phone with Evan Starr uh, of the University of Maryland. And Matt Johnson joins us from Duke University as well. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at bizradio111, B-I-Z, Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I I don't know, Evan, if, if... it means a whole lot in terms of the course of, of whatever this investigation is going on and how far along it is. But when you look at some of the, the states that are involved in this, you're talking about uh, some of the largest in the country right now who have probably the most employees that are working in this sector as well. Places like New York and California and New Jersey, Massachusetts, Illinois. I mean, these are all states that probably have. Uh, you know, thousands upon thousands of employees in these sectors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a uh, uh, there's fast food in every state, obviously. And so uh, these why these AG's offices and not other ones are interested in this is is an interesting question. And and I hope that states that are not currently engaged in this begin considering looking at these these practices that we're really uncovering and I think just just to get to the point that that uh, that uh, I think uh, Matt was making earlier is that there's a, there's a big discussion right now around wage transparency, which is that you know what what yeah. is what if I if I go to this job, what was the last person paid for the same job that I'm getting hired for? And and there's a there's a you know a lot of a lot of questions around how if if we're, we were more transparent about wages, what would the effect be? But that. That discussion is important, but it, it, it ignores the fact that there's lots of non-wage characteristics for which we're totally not transparent. So you could put no poaching agreements in this class of non, non, uh, 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 provisions that are not transparent to the, to the worker. I mean, even like Matt was mentioning, non-compete agreements and non-solicitation uh, agreements and non-disclosure agreements and even intellectual property assignment agreements – they can often be uh, delayed such that you don't sign those things until you've, you're on day one of the job. You've accepted the job, you've turned down other offers, and you get to work on the first day, and they ask you to sign all of these provisions. And, and that, that, you know, up until that point, you, you didn't have any idea that you were going to be asked to sign those things. And so I think that's the, the, the fact that these characteristics are not transparent is maybe just as important as wage transparency. Maybe not. We just don't know. Uh, and if you go on to Glassdoor.com or Indeed.com, you can you can learn about wages in a potential job, but it's very difficult to learn about any of these uh, important non-wage characteristics that are going to impinge on your ability to move uh, subsequently. Yeah, so I just wanted to broaden this out a little bit and take it to the question of governance, right? Yeah. So if you are a, a corporation and the franchisees that we're thinking about are you know, all pretty big companies, there's a broader question about how much effort you should be making to squeeze the wages of your employees down, right? And um, the reason for that, of course, is that uh, – Broadly defined, there is, I think, a resurgence of the view that companies have responsibilities not just to shareholders but to the communities around them and to the employees uh, around them as well. And there are lots of things that employees, employers could do that are perfectly legal that would put more pressure on employees um, and would keep wages even further down. To what extent should they do that, right? What, where is it sort of over the bar and where is it not? I think the other thing we might want to broaden out, because you've got economists on the show here, is that there's a view among economists that, frankly, 
nobody but economists shares. And that is the view that as long as people choose, it's probably okay, right? Yeah. And there was a joke about the difference between economists and sociologists. And economists are about how people make choices, and sociologists are about how they have no choices to make. So if you're a, you know, if if you're a young kid working in the inner city or someplace, right, and you don't have transportation, and there's a McDonald's near you or another fran- franchise yeah. chain. And you go there and they offer you a job. And even if you know that there's a non-compete agreement or a non-poaching agreement, is it really going to matter to you very no. much? You just don't no. have choices, yeah. right? So so I think that's part of the broader question about fairness and governance of these corporations. As I said before, you know, they're, they're playing it both ways in the franchise world, right? These are independent businesses. They're not uh, connected to us. And then at the same time, they're saying, oh, you got to sign these agreements that you won't compete with each other. But the, the, the the other question for for Evan and Matt is playing off of what Peter just said. How much realistically, if somebody uh, Evan, I'll start with you. If somebody wanted to go from one Wendy's to another, you know, how much uh, of a difference wage wise could they actually expect to to incur a, a benefit if there was any? I mean, I think there's an expectation in this industry that you're going to get. A little bit over minimum wage, and obviously it's part of the reason why we saw the push uh, in the last uh, year or two uh, to try and get fifteen dollars an hour as the as the minimum rate for for people that are working in this industry. Yeah, so I think I think that it's it's, it's a great point, and I think that if a worker voluntarily wants to move from one Wendy's to another Wendy's, and 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 the the, the second Wendy's is willing to hire her, then. It may not be reflected totally in the wages. I mean, it could be that they got a promotion, and I don't know Wendy's internal wage structure, but right. there could be levels, and they could be moving up a level. But presumably, they're moving maybe because it's closer to home, right. maybe because uh, the, they, they like the boss better, or their friends work there, or it's a better work environment. So not all of this is going to be reflected in wages, per se. There could be other, what, what economists would call, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, compensating differentials. Uh, uh, other amenities about the workplace that are going to give them satisfaction outside of the wage. Well, I think it all. Uh, the yeah. reason they're doing it, I think, is not probably so much for that. It's right. to cut turnover. Sure, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. But the expectation of the employee, you know, moving from one another, if there is a promotion, then obviously yes. But if you're just, yeah. you know, somebody that works on the line at, at a McDonald's and you go to another one, how right. much of an expectation should you have that you're right. going to have this uh, amazing increase in pay? Right. You probably shouldn't in the first place. Right. And I think the, well, the, the point where we're all headed here is if you wanted to, to, to <laughs> restrict employees, employees on something, this is really kind of a lousy way to do it, exactly. because the payoff from it is likely to be pretty trivial. And and it's Mm -hmm. becoming an embarrassment, I think, for these companies, right? Uh, Because people are hearing, you know, really? No poaching? You can't go from one McDonald's to the other or one Wendy's to the other? So I think it's becoming a kind of embarrassment for them right Mm -hmm. now. Matt? Yeah, on on that note, you know, I think what uh, first sort of opened up this can of worms about how these agreements are used in these industries was a few years ago. Everyone on the phone probably remembers Jimmy John's was exposed as forcing its fast food sandwich makers to sign non-compete agreements. And there was a whole bunch of bad publicity about this. And then I think a few months later, Jimmy John's just dropped them because presumably the negative publicity outweighed whatever benefits they were getting from these agreements. So it'll be interesting to see if... I think they got sued the the Illinois Attorney General and the New York Attorney General's offices, actually. Even better. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, then, so, th- then I guess the question, Matt, is then it, it, obviously this investigation is ongoing. 
what kind of expectations do you think we have where this issue is concerned? Are we potentially moving towards, you know, some sort of move to to remove these these uh, non-poaching agreements in, in general? And the question is also, how do you enforce that as well? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and, you know, I think I think it's worth reflecting that in some ways um, kind of outlawing these sorts of agreements can, in theory, be a bipartisan issue. You know, everyone can get behind making markets more competitive, right, on one side versus also another side maybe giving workers more bargaining power. So I, I think there's a way to come to a common ground here. Um, that said, I mean, of course, with gridlock in Washington and the current climate, I imagine it will be unlikely we see something at the federal level. But given what we see states moving on, um, you know, both with these states, attorneys general investigating these agreements in the fast food industry, along with states recently passing either outright bans on non-compete agreements or restrictions on them, such as Illinois uh, banning them recently for low-wage workers, mm-hmm. Hawaii recently banning them for, for most workers, um, I th- it's you know it appears that we're seeing a lot of action at the state level. So my guess is that's where we'll that's sort of the level of the playing field where we'll see policy action uh, coming forward. Evan, well, your thoughts? Let me, let me yeah. So let me let me just say that I like I, I think that uh, the question of how you handle this from an enforcement perspective is very difficult. And and part of the part of my my reasoning for that is that if you look at the case of non compete agreements, if you look at executives, you'll find that non compete agreements are still found in states that have banned them, like California. Um, if you look at in some of my survey data, if you look at the the kind of average U.S. labor force participant in California, they're just as likely to be bound by a non compete agreement as in the states that most vigorously enforce them. Right. And I, I have I have other data uh, looking at at firms, and then if you look at firms in California, uh, close to fifty percent of firms in in California say they use non competes with all or some of their workers. And so even if you ban these types of provisions. Uh, I, I'm not sure that that's going to actually reduce their use. And it could be that it's the way that you ban them. You need to have some more teeth on it. Or I'm not exactly sure how you do it because I, I think we, we still see non-competing yeah. agreements, at least in places where they are, uh, wouldn't be enforced in, in a court of law. Because, again, it, it kind of, and I was kind of making the, the statement kind of off the cuff, but it, it feels like that now that we're getting into this, this could be more the case. These are basically, to a degree, handshake agreements under the table which at times, how do you, you know, how do you police that? Uh, yeah, the poach, the non-poaching ones, I, I think you're right. I remember looking into this in the nursing industry, uh, and they had them all the time between hospitals, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you think about the Intel, Google, all that's uh, the big tech one a couple of years ago. You know, it was only by looking at email records and phone records yeah. that they actually could, could crack that one because smart people don't write these things down, right? Sure, because yeah. it's pretty obvious. I think back to Evan's point about the non-competes, right, which are a little different yeah. um, there. Uh, I was just curious, uh, Evan, I'd be interested just to remind people what you found um, about those in terms of the wage effects and things. But just to clear up, too, the reason companies use these even when they can't be enforced is the employees don't know they can't be enforced, right? right? And that's that has an effect on them even if they are not lawyers and don't know they can't uh, enforce them. That's right. That's right. If you ask workers, what do you know about uh, the the? If you ask workers, you know, at what level are non-compete policies determined, and you give them state, city, national, county, only about twenty percent say the state level. 
And and if you ask them, well, what do you believe about you know enforceability? Basically, their beliefs are that it's it's going to be enforced on average, regardless of which state they live in. And so most most workers here are are uninformed about what's going to happen at the court level. And it and it, and it looks like their their beliefs that they're going to be enforced, that kind of default belief that it's a contract, it's got your name on it, that appears to encourage them actually to turn down job offers they might have otherwise considered. And and uh, I have some recent research that, that kind of documents that point. Evan, I was just if you would remind, people don't know uh, your research probably on this, could you tell us what the cost to people are of these Non-competes? Of, of these contracts, yeah. So it depends on which which. Um, so there's some there's some conflicting evidence here. So and, and there's a variety of studies, but I'll give you one. Uh, if you look at people who sign non-compete agreements versus those who don't, it, it looks like those who sign them actually earn a little bit more money. But part of that is because the the workers who generally sign non-compete agreements are not these low-wage workers that right. we're talking about. They they tend to be uh, managers, tech workers, and so on and so forth. And so it's really difficult to make sure that uh, when you're looking at the, the the kind of the causal effect of non-compete agreements, that you're comparing apples to apples and you're identifying just the effect of non-competes. And I would say that we don't have great evidence, uh, great causal evidence on that on that question yet. And Matt, maybe you can chime in with some of your work if 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 you have more evidence on that point. Um, but what we do see is that uh, if you exploit this this timing dimension, workers that uh, that get the notified about the non-compete on the first day of the job versus workers who get notified about the non-compete when they got the job offer, we see about a 10% wage gap between mm-hmm. those guys. And uh, the guys who got it after, they don't see any training benefits. They don't see any wage benefits relative to people who have not signed anything. Uh, and they're they're less satisfied in their job, and they have about a year longer of of tenure than people who are just free to move. Matt, your um, thoughts. Matt, your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, um, you know, I I think Evan, you know, summarized his work and others' work on this topic uh, fantastically. One thing I'll just kind of piggyback on is, you know, Ed, what Evan just discussed is, you know, what if you compare a worker that signed and not compete to a similar worker that has not. But another question is, uh, how do the laws at the state level that allow these agreements to be enforced affect workers' wages? Because sort of from a policy perspective, that might actually be what we care about because that's the lever that we can pull. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, going back to some of Evan's work and also uh, some new work I'm uh, conducting with some colleagues, what you typically find is that in states where non-compete agreements are more enforceable, the typical workers' wage goes down. So I, I know Evans, mm-hmm. I think, found that if you go from a state like California that doesn't enforce non-competes to one that's kind of at the average, you see a typical worker's wage decline by about 5%. And uh, some new work I'm doing is kind of corroborating that effect. Um, so it, it's pretty interesting that maybe at the worker level, you see these wage gains from signing a non-compete. But at kind of the, the economy-wide level, you see wages go down when these agreements are allowed. Great having you all with us today. Peter, thank you very much for coming in. Appreciate it. Thank you. Evan, great to have you on the phone. Matt, thank you for your time from Duke today. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Thank you. Peter Capelli from here at the Wharton School. Evan Starr from the University of Maryland. Matt Johnson at Duke University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.